podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. is love, sang the Beatles many decades ago. It's a song still sung today, and for good reason. The tune is catchy, and the message is hopeful. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Love, after all, is our greatest joy, but it can also be complex and complicated. Loving someone, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, means taking the good with the bad, and that's not always easy. Many, if not most of us, will have to take care of the person we love during an illness. It might be for a day, a week, or even longer. Some may find it a daunting challenge. For Bonnie Friedman, it's a call to action. Over the past two and a half decades, her husband has been hospitalized many times. Often, it's involved life-threatening illness with long periods of hospitalization and recuperation. In times like that, Bonnie does everything in her power to help him get better. Love is the starting point for advocacy. Along the way, Bonnie Friedman has learned a lot about the hospital setting and the very real impact that families can have in making sure their loved ones get the best care. Hospitals are bureaucratic and scary places. Families can and do make a real difference. They start with love and build from there. There's one more line from the Beatles song that applies here. There's no one you can save that can't be saved. In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Bonnie Friedman. Bonnie is a healthcare advocate, speaker, and author. Her expertise is hard-won based on more than 24 years of advocating for her husband through 14 separate hospitalizations, some routine, some quite dramatic, and some truly life and death experiences. Today, her husband is thriving, and Bonnie Friedman is sharing her experience through blogging, speaking, and writing to help others get the best care for their loved ones, too. She speaks to community organizations, caregiving and civic groups, congregations, and others interested in healthcare, advocacy, caregiving, aging in place, and related issues. She also blogs regularly and is the host of a podcast, Advocates and Experts. She is the author of the book, Hospital Warrior, How to Get the Best Care for Your Loved One. It is a comprehensive, easy-to-use guide with tips, insights, and advice on how to navigate the hospital environment and culture. It is also a story of love, family, and thriving. Here is the interview with Bonnie Friedman. In your own words, 
who is Barney Friedman? Wow, that's a good and big <laughs> open-ended <Yes>. question. <laughs> I'm a mother, a wife, a writer. I love my friendships. And I think I'm a seeker. I'm looking for the things that feel true to me and that fill my soul. That's wonderful. Thank you. Before we begin talking about how to get the best hospital care for someone we love when that happens, I have a few general questions for you. What is the world's greatest need? Wow, that is a big question. I think the world's greatest need is for better understanding of one another so that we can in a constructive way, together address the many, many needs that we can see in the world around us. And some of those are very practical needs. We see a, a, a world filled with migration of people and we see climate change that threatens us all. And so many of these challenges that I think we don't confront because, or we don't confront effectively because we don't understand how to do it together. I love that, Bonnie. I love that answer. And I love that word, understanding. That's a powerful word. What is love to you? I think love is what fills your heart. And love can be on many different levels. Love can be something very practical and tangible. It can be something spiritual. It could be something blissful. I've been working on an essay recently, and I've been looking at a poem that I've loved for many years, Uh, by William Blake, and it starts to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. And I've been thinking about those words and how I love them and why I love them and what they represent. And I think it, what they represent is what fills my heart, what makes me happy. And that can come from something as, as simple as a wild flower or it can come from the relationships we build with others or the things we do that feed our souls. Beautiful. Do you believe in God? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, and it's something I have honestly been thinking about. And that's, I mentioned I was writing, uh, working on an essay, and that that comes into the question of this essay as well. I think the short answer is no. And I've given it a lot of question over many, or, or a lot of time to that question over many, many years. And I think I've, I have decided I'm a humanist. I believe in our human interactions. I believe in the good that we as individuals can do and know that there's a counter to that. There's the destruction that human beings can do as well. But I have come to the conclusion over time that the short answer is no. What do you think is the purpose and meaning of your life? 
my life individually, I think in general, people are meant to grow. All of us, we grow. Life is meant about growth, whether it's a plant, a wildflower, uh, or human being. We are meant to grow. And so I think we have to keep that moving. We have to keep working at that. How do we grow? How do we evolve as individuals? How do we get better? How do we make things better, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us, the people whose lives we touch? And so I think as I continue to evolve and grow, I try to focus on making better the things that I don't think are quite where I want them in my life. Um, and, and I also believe equally strongly in the value and importance of giving back. Giving back is something that has been a guiding principle in my own life for really as long as I can remember. And I worked in the public sector for many, many years. All of that was about public service. And I've tried in my business, in my communications and strategic management business to always look for ways in which what I do gives back to the greater good. And of course, my book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is also very much about giving back. Mm, wonderful. You mentioned growth. How do we know that we have evolved or grown? I think that's something very internal, that we have a sense within ourselves of who we are, what fits, what makes us uncomfortable, and when we've reached a point where it feels right. And it's that click you get when it feels right, that you know you've reached another level of growing into yourself. And I'm not suggesting there's some predetermined mold of who any of us should be and that we have to grow to fit a mold, but, but more we're self-directed, but we also have an internal feel for when things have gotten to a point that we feel good about and whether that's some uh, outlook on life or ways of handling relationships or dealing with problems or understanding ourselves and what makes us happy. Um, I think you know when you get there. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like uh, beauty in the eyes of the beholder. You know it when you see it, but you can't always put the right words around it. It's a feeling. Yeah, I hear a lot the term spiritual growth being the most important kind of growth because that way you don't need to keep track of how much you grow physically, financially, or uh, psychologically. What is spiritual growth to you? Again, I think it is coming to terms with what 
is important to you, what you value, and being able to embrace it. And for some people, it's religion. For some people, it's God in a in a broader sense. For some others, it's a way of looking at the world or looking at life. I think, again, it's for every individual, what fills your soul and what makes you feel happy, makes you feel connected, uh, whether it's to the universe or to your family or to a sense of purpose and good. It's charting a course that is meaningful to you as an individual, as opposed to one that's been uh, pre-described for you. Right. I love the way you don't create rules for growth. It could be anything. I think it's very organic, very organic. You have to leave yourself open to it, whatever it may be, so that when things come along, you're present and able to appreciate it or take it in. Let's talk about your book. Why did you write the book titled Hospital Warrior, How to Get the Best Care for Your Loved One? That's a very long story. I'll give you the short version. <laughs> Over a period of 24 plus years, my husband had a series of life-threatening illnesses. Some of them were interconnected, like cardiovascular disease. And some of them seemed a little more random. And sometimes things interconnected in strange ways. But he, without a lot of warning sometimes, would be really just brought to the brink of life and death by some of these horrible experiences that landed him in the hospital, Uh, 14 different times over this period. And all the while, I was trying to, you know, grapple with what was happening to him. But we were still young parents in the beginning, raising children. I had a job that I needed to um, at least be somewhat mindful of. And I kept struggling to uh, keep up with all that was going on. And with every twist and turn, I kept learning more and more about what goes on in the hospital and how to understand the workings of a hospital so that I could do my best to help my husband. After his last major illness, which was a thankfully, several years ago now. And I have to add, he is thriving. He's, people always want to know. He's doing so well now. But after this last experience, I came to realize that I had learned so much. I learned enough literally to write a book. I was just brimming over with the need to share. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago in our conversation, this need to give back that drives me. 
really compelled me to feel like I had learned some powerful lessons. I had accumulated some really important, valuable information, and I wanted to put it out there. I wanted to use that to help other people so that if they had to confront these situations, they would have the handbook that I never had. So that's what propelled me forward to write this book. Right. What is to be a hospital advocate and a patient advocate? They're very similar, advocating for a patient. And in my case, I really narrowed it down to the hospital experience. Although much of what I write about carries over into other realms of of, uh, patient advocacy, be it, you know, a doctor's office or a rehab facility or a nursing home. But I, I really wanted to zoom in on the hospital because I felt that's such a unique setting. And being an advocate in that setting requires a a special kind of focus, I think. You have to learn to flip a switch. When you walk into the hospital to visit someone you care about and that person is ill, you come in preloaded, if you will, with a lot of worry and concern and you want to be by that person's bedside and reassure them and hold their hand and maybe put a nice cool compress on their head. All of those things are lovely and I don't take away from any of them. I've done them all myself. But to be a good advocate for a loved one, you have to flip a switch And you have to sort of work your mind around the idea that you're not there to visit someone you love. You are there to become part of the healthcare team because what you bring, your knowledge and understanding of the patient, your appreciation for that patient's not just medical history, but the things they value and place importance upon, All of that has to factor in to the overall care plan for the hospital and what comes beyond. And I think the medical profession is just only beginning to appreciate that, to take families seriously, not just as visitors, but as as participants in the care team. So it's a flip of the switch. You have to learn to wrap your head around so that you can really be effective. Mm, It makes so much sense to me because sometimes we can just become very emotional and let that kind of carry through our actions. Mm -hmm. What is the best way that we can take care of ourselves while taking care of others in stressful situations? Yeah, that's such an important point. And um, I'll preface it by saying there's all kind of research out there that shows that caregivers often fare uh, more poorly in their health and well-being than the people they're trying to take care of. Because caregivers tend to try to be selfless and they, they try to be so present and so much there 
or the one they're caring for, that they literally lose themselves in the process. So I start my book, Hospital Warrior. The first chapter is the importance of taking care of yourself. And I liken it to the advice you get when you sit down on an airplane and the steward or stewardess tells you that if you have to use the air masks, you need to fasten yours before you try to help anyone else around you. And I always used to think, especially as a mother, that I would never put my own need before my children in that setting. Of course, I would take care of them first. But what I've come to learn is if you aren't taking care of yourself, you cannot take care of anyone else. So uh, I devote a whole chapter to that subject. But I think it's some things are very basic, things that all of us could just rattle off um, without a lot of thought. You've got to sleep. You've got to eat. You've got to um, make sure you're getting some rest and, you know, things that are very, very practical. But I think you also have to step back from that a little bit and focus on what can you do for yourself, even in short moments. So I used to, when my husband was in the hospital, try to find even short periods, a half hour or 40 minutes where I could go to the gym and just run in place and work off my energy. But it made me feel so much better. So it's therapeutic in that way. You also have to learn to accept help. I don't know about you, but that was a big one for me. Learning to let other people do things for me not because I'm not capable, but because having that help frees me up, whether it's time or emotional energy or psychic energy, it frees me up then to be able to do the other things that need to be done. So people will often ask you, well, what can I do? What what do you need? And honestly, I think you have to have a little list of what you really want and be able to vocalize it. I want dinner made for me. I want someone to walk my dog every day. I need someone to take me to the movies or whatever it is. And it's okay to be freed up for a little bit of time. I think that's a real hard lesson to learn when somebody's sick and you're so focused on taking care of them. You don't need to feel guilty because you take care of yourself too. Mm, Yeah, I like that. What is communicating effectively with doctors and nurses? There's so many things that go into that. Again, I'll go back to flipping that switch in your head. You're not there as a visitor, you're part of the team. And when you talk to doctors and nurses, you want to be very professional. You want to hold your emotions in check. And that's really hard when you're worried about someone you love. But to the greatest extent possible, you certainly don't want to show anger. You don't want to carry on. You don't want to cry. You don't want to do all the things that you might feel like doing because the doctors and nurses, and I really have come to 
uh, respect the stress and challenges of their work. They have such a limited amount of time per patient. They don't get to spend all the time they really want. And they're stressed and they have to make the most of the little bit of time they have going from one patient to the next. So you want to make good use of that time. And that means holding your emotion in check. And it means being prepared. So don't stand at the bedside umming and awing and trying to remember what you wanted to ask about. I tell people, Keep a notebook with you all the time. Write down everything that's going on. What doctors come in? Who's in charge of what aspect of the case? How do I reach that doctor if I need to find her somewhere? And what are my questions? So that when you get that five or 10 minutes with a doctor, you're ready. You've got the questions, you've got your pen in hand, and you're prepared to make the most of it. I think that's such an important part of being effective in your communication. If you have a little time, try to do a little research, try to understand what's going on. Doctors especially seem to really appreciate the fact that the family is trying to keep up and trying to be knowledgeable. Nurses come at it from a somewhat different direction. Nurses see themselves as advocates as well. And so when you talk to nurses, advocate to advocate, I think it resonates in a really useful way. Right. Yeah, you mentioned again, holding back emotions. I'm just wondering if this is really possible in situations where you're seeing somebody you love suffering or going through something that it's so painful to see and watch. Do you suggest a psychologist have a psychologist in the room at all times? (laughs) Well, yeah, that would be nice. But, you know, one of the things that works for me, and this is just personal, I don't know if it works for everyone else. I try to the extent I can to get my emotions out of the way beforehand. So if I need to cry, it's better for me to find a way to let that out before I get to the hospital. Uh, Maybe I'll call a friend and cry on her shoulder. If I'm frustrated and angry, maybe I just want to jump up and down in my living room and scream a little bit. Or, as I mentioned, go to the gym and run it off if that's what works for you. It's finding what works for you because being overly emotional in the hospital is not good for fostering the kind of communication we're talking about. It's not good for the patient to see you so worked up and so overwrought, that just makes the patient feel worse. And in the end, it's not good for you. You're not gonna look back on that day you screamed and yelled and carried on and say, gee, what a great job I did. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) You're gonna look back on the day that you said to yourself, I'm going to hold it in. I'm going to make the most of the 10 minutes I've got to talk to the doctor and make sure we're dealing with what needs to be dealt with. And then I can go down to the end of the hall and have a good cry. But 
you're going to feel good about yourself because you know you did your best and you were effective and you didn't you didn't make a bad situation worse by bringing all that um, emotion into it. It's hard. It's very hard. I'm not suggesting this is easy to do. Right. In a way, then it would be replacing emotions with the word you used in the beginning of our conversation, understanding. Oh, that's a great link. I like that. Yeah, that made me think about it. You mentioned making the most of what the hospital has to offer. I'm wondering, how do we do that? Have you already mentioned everything that we could do or... Well, I think it's important to bring into this equation front and center what is important to the patient. And sometimes the patient is able to communicate effectively for herself or himself. But in the situations that I'm talking about, often the patient isn't able to. And so you really just the eyes and ears for the patient. You're the mouthpiece for the patient, too. So you have to bring in what matters to them. And so that sometimes has to replace what matters to you. So, you know, you may think the food is horrible and how should anyone be expected to eat this mushy stuff they bring on the, <laughs> on the food tray? Right. But that may not be what's most important to the patient. You may feel that you're, you have a hard time managing pain. And so if it were you, you'd want more painkillers, not less. But that may not be where the patient's uh, priorities are. The patient may have a higher tolerance for pain. The patient may just want to be able to sleep more. The patient may want to be left alone just to have some quiet. So you as the loved one may want to be there, honey, what can I do for you? Can I get you anything? Would you like some water? And the patient may be thinking, I just want to sleep. You have to try to get inside the patient's head as best you can be there for the patient, support the patient, represent the patient when you need to, but also know when to step back a little bit too. It's a very tricky balance. I think being at the hospital for the patient is one of the most important things you can do. You can be there in ways big and small, and you can invite help for being there. So being at the hospital may not may not be practical 24/7. We talked about early on, we talked about accepting health. Help. Maybe there's a, another member of the family who can sit in for you for a while or maybe a good friend, but find the ways that that bring some balance for you as the family member and for your role in representing the patient's best interests and needs. Yes, yeah. What do we need to know if things go wrong in the hospital? And what could go seriously wrong? Medical errors are one of the biggest concerns in medicine today, particularly in the hospital setting. And medical errors can result in 
all kinds of serious harm and sadly even death. Um, and they come about often because of miscommunication. And I'm certainly not saying always, but you know, one of the things I like to talk about is the importance of uh, what I call connecting the dots. It's something that an advocate can do because doctors don't communicate well with one another. And that's just a sad fact. I think they're all aware of it. So that's not a big secret. But we have to find ways to help them connect the dots. And um, that can mean uh, some following up saying, I heard you say this and did you mean that? Or it could mean speaking to the next doctor who comes in the room. Did you know that Dr. So-and-so just was here and, and made certain changes? So those are ways in which we can help facilitate some of the communication. But a lot of things can go wrong in a hospital. And uh, sadly, you can't predict them all. All you can do is try to be present, try to be involved, try to be on top of things so that you understand to the best of your ability. And then you can try to help uh, move things along in the right direction. What is like to prepare for discharge? from your own personal experience? Yeah, that is one of the most loaded questions <laughs> because it gets shortchanged so often in the hospital setting. And I think it gets shortchanged by everybody involved in the process. Oftentimes discharge seems to be the nurse comes in with a printout of instructions from the doctor and they're being read to the patient while he or she's getting wheeled down the hall to the, to the front door to go home. And um, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a lot of work done behind the scenes, but often the patient and the family doesn't know that and hasn't had an opportunity for much input, let alone any interaction around it. So someone who I interviewed for the book, who's an expert in this field, told me discharge planning should start the day, the first day the patient's admitted to the hospital. That blew my mind. I just was blown away by that. It's probably not going to happen like that in most cases, but it shouldn't be the last minute set of decisions either. So, you know, if a person's come into the hospital, they've had a pretty simple procedure, they're going home the next day, all of this is not such a big deal. But when someone's been in the hospital for a while and maybe then gone on to uh, a nursing home or a rehab facility beyond the hospital, they've been away from home for some time, it's really important to have a very coordinated plan for that patient's care and follow-up. And that has to include what's the home environment like? Are there steps? Is there someone around who can be there for the patient? Or are they going to be left all alone while everyone goes back to work? 
Um, how's the patient going to get to uh, their physical therapy if they need it? Who's going to take them to their follow-up doctor's appointments? Who's going to make sure the medications are, are laid out in the right order for the patient during the course of the day? Uh, on and on and on. There's so many considerations. Diet. Diet. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Restrictions. Make sure the patient's not doing something he's not supposed to do. So yes. Um, yes. so the discharge planning in, in a complex case usually involves social workers who are trained and expert in this. In a simpler case, it might be uh, discharge planners who don't have to bring quite as much background to the process. But I, you know, I think when you start to think about the patient going home, you should be already into a conversation with the people who are planning discharge. And if they haven't come to you, then you let it be known to the patient's nurse that you want a conversation. And you may need to try to initiate this um, more than once, but you need to let them know it's important and you want their follow-up in time so that you can start planning appropriately. Yeah, makes so much sense, everything you said. Um, is there a, a discharge checklist in your book? You know, there is not a checklist in the book. There are some resources at the end of the book where you can get more information on a variety of topics. But, you know, if I had to write that book again, maybe I would put in your discharge checklist idea. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. So to conclude our conversation about hospital warriors, the last question for you would be, what are your most important checklists and tips to make anyone stronger for their loved ones when they have been hospitalized? Well, I think um, some of those we've touched on in, in our conversation. The first and foremost is making sure you're taking care of yourself so that you're as rested and prepared and ready as you can be. Number two, remember you are part of the care team. What you bring to the hospital setting is as important as the role of the doctors and nurses. It's just a different role that you have, but it's very important. Number three would be being prepared. And that means the notebook we talked about, thinking about your questions, doing a little research, getting as much information as you can, and then being present, that both physically and otherwise. So present, be there to the extent you possibly can. If you have work, if you have children, you may not be able to be there as much as you would like. You might be able to get some help um, from family or friends. And when you are there, try to be very present in terms of finding out what's going on. If you can't be there when the doctors are doing rounds, which is usually at some god-awful hour of the early morning, um, <laughs> then try to 
talk to the nurses about what took place at rounds or try to get a phone number so you can call the doctor and discuss those things. But you want to be as present and involved as you can. And last but not least, make sure you're representing the patient's interests and needs and not just your own. That is so great. Thank you. The next section of the interview are my final questions. I call them well-being questions, wholesome questions. The only thing I can say to you before I start asking these questions is just answer whatever comes to mind. What are you grateful for in this very moment? I'm very grateful for my family. My husband is doing extremely well. I have two wonderful grown children. They're twins. Mm -hmm. Um, They're happily married and they live near me. I have so many (laughs) friends whose children are halfway around the country or the world. I'm very grateful for my family and the loving relationships that we share. I'm grateful for some very practical things. I have health insurance and I know how important that is, especially when we talk about hospital care. I'm grateful for my friendships and how meaningful they are. I'm grateful that I'm not in a position where I have to worry about uh, putting a roof over our heads or putting food on the table. We're all fortunate when we're able to be able to do these things without struggling. And so I I try to remember that. Those are things that are important to me and fill me up inside in, in good ways. There are things in the world that scare and worry us all. And I, I think it's important to try to come back to remembering the things that we value too. How do you define success? I know the answer might be the same one <laughs> or oh, similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Similar. It's, it's achieving what you want on your terms. I mean, I think that's success. So And you may be modifying those terms. You may say, well, my goal is, uh, you know, by the time I'm thus and such an age, I want to be in charge of some organization or I want to be making a certain amount of money or somehow some people might measure success. For me, I think it's more about being able to if either achieve the goals that I've set for myself or modify the goals so that I still can feel good about what I'm able to accomplish. Um, so you have to you have to kind of work with it. You have to be a little bit um, flexible about it. But I think success is when you feel satisfied or good about what you've been able to accomplish. What is to be strong? To be strong, I think, is to draw on your inner qualities, the ones that are you, not somebody else's, and make the most of them. So, you know, your personal inner strength might be that you have clear vision and you you think fast on your feet, or you might have 
some ability to take the long view, not the short view or whatever, what, you know, to find those things that you're good at and then make the very most of them and utilize them. I know that I've been told multiple times in multiple ways, I'm not a patient person. And I can't argue with that. I am not a patient person. (laughs) By the same token, I also know that um, being impatient, not rude and not nasty about it, but sometimes being impatient enables you to get things done. So I think we have to find what our strengths are and our qualities and use them to our best advantage. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life? I think the hardest lesson is learning to accept your own limits. And again, that can be in ways large or small. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, I'm not going to be a prima ballerina because I'm not a very good dancer. Um, (laughs) Now, I never had my heart set on being one either, so that's okay. (laughs) But I think when we set out to do the things we want to do or accomplish the things that that we feel are, are important, we have to do it with some realistic viewpoints. And sometimes coming to terms with that and understanding in ourselves that as much as, you know, you want to be an opera singer, it's just not going to happen. You also have to accept there are maybe some goals just aren't realistic. Maybe um, some hopes and dreams have to be modified. And I'm not saying let go of your dreams. I'm saying you might have to modify them somewhat. So I think just coming to understand yourself and what's possible for you. And I'm not saying just be satisfied with the minimum. You you should stretch and you should um, try to be the best you can in the ways that are important to you. But you have to come to terms as well with the things that just aren't going to be either. And that's okay. Mm, I like that a lot, Bonnie. What never fails to make you happy? My children. I love, they're grown, as I mentioned. They're happily married. They don't live far from me. My daughter and I have been doing some traveling together the last couple of years. Um, We've had wonderful experiences. Uh, We spent a week at a health and wellness spa this past year. Our son spends time at the house, often helping my husband with household projects. I love being around them. I love being with them. It never fails to make me happy. What is another word for healing? I want to say closure, but it's such an overused word these days. I feel like in some ways it loses its meaning. But healing whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, I think it means tying up and weaving back in all the loose threads so that we make whole cloth again. 
If you knew you would die soon, would you make any change in your life? Nothing big. I think I would want to continue doing the things that are meaningful to me. As I mentioned, my family being with my husband and children, I would want to make sure I got to see the ocean as much as I could. I find the, the beach is my happy place. Being at the water's edge touches my heart and soul in ways that feel profound. And so I would want to be near the water as much as I could, but mostly be with my family. That's wonderful. Do you believe in life after death? I believe in reincarnation. And I think that's a little bit different than what you just asked me. So do I believe in souls going to heaven or hell? No, but I do believe in reincarnation. And I think that is such a strong and really uh, just majestic kind of concept. I think about that. I've come to believe in that um, over time and have had some experiences that for me validate it. So a different way of answering your question. So it is a belief. Does this belief motivates you to behave and act the way you do these days or you have been living your life? Because I believe in um, reincarnation? Yes. Said, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think so. I think I'm living my life the best way I can. I'm trying to do my best and... How do I have a little eye on the future? Well, maybe every once in a while, but I try to stick with the present. Mm, I like that. A um, more clear question would be, what motivates you to choose to be good and to do good in the world? I don't know. I think it's just who I am. I, You know, I mentioned that I believe in giving back and i that's such an important concept for me. And although I'm not religious in the sense of the question about believing in God, I am very rooted in the traditions of the religion that I've grown up in and still embrace, and that is Judaism. I feel very Jewish. And For me, that's quite possible without having to also believe in a Jewish concept of God. And there are Jew there are people who are Jews who are Jewish humanists, and so that's fine, that works. But in Judaism, there is a practice um, and a belief known as tikkun olam. And generally speaking, that translates to healing the world. And it means we all do our part to try to help make the world the best it can be, to heal the scars and wounds of the world. And we may not do it all ourselves. We may not do it all at once. But if we're all doing a little bit, then we're contributing to that greater good. And that sounds a chord for me. That feels right. And um, without ascribing it to, you know, something metaphysical, I just, I feel like that fits for me. 
And so I want to do my part. Yes, I understand. I guess I'm interested in asking this question more often. What motivates you to do good, to be good? Because I have been getting two answers. One based on spirituality or beliefs. And the other one, it's because it makes me feel good, which would be a selfish one. So I'm just wondering if someone one day will just tell me something like you said. It's just who I am. I can't do differently. <laughs> it's not even a choice. My last two questions for you. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Well, I know that as I touched on earlier, I think we're meant to grow. That's part, just part of living. Any living creature is a growing being. So to grow, I know that life is unpredictable and you can plan all you want as much as you want and, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so it true. may or may not happen and, um, and you have to be able to roll with that. You can be disappointed, you can be surprised, you might be shocked, um, but you have to roll with it. And I think you have to make the most of what you have and appreciate it. And so sometimes when I'm feeling a little down about something, I feel, you know, maybe I'm depressed or uh, disappointed or, or feeling longing about something. I, I have to remind myself very clearly of all the good things that I do have And I have a little self-talk, you know, that starts, that kind of starts and ends with get over yourself. Um, <laughs> but right. in the middle, it's appreciating everything that's good. So I, I, you know, I think, I think we have to stay focused. And uh, when you're in the throes of things, it's hard. If you're, if you have someone you love is ill, if you're, worried about your children or you're not sure you can pay the bills some month or put food on them. That's very, very hard. And you can't expect people to get all philosophical <laughs> and metaphysical yes. when they're dealing with, with these really tough, just practical issues. But if you're lucky enough to have the luxury to step back from, from the practical and focus on some of these bigger things, then trying to appreciate what you do have and make the most of it. I, I think there's a lot that's written about the importance of gratitude and what you make for yourself when you can appreciate what you do have. Wow. Yeah. It has been a meaningful conversation. It made me think, feel. Yeah. Thank you so much for your contribution to well-being. Well, you made me think a lot. I have to admit, <laughs> some of the things you asked, I really had to dig down and reach deep inside. And I had to bite my tongue a few times because I wanted to turn it around and ask you what drives you and what's important and what do you value and how do you do the things you do? So maybe that's another conversation for another time. Yes, that's a new episode. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you so much again, Bunny. Where can we find more information about you, your work, books, products, services, and future projects? Oh, well, that one I can answer easily. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I have to say, for the most part, is consolidated on my website. It's www.hospitalwarrior, all one word, dot com. And uh, there's a little background information about me, what I did before I became the hospital warrior, and links to buying the book. I've done a lot of blogging. And I have a podcast that I do sometimes too. And so there's links to all of those things on the website and much more information. So I just want to, if you'll allow me to just throw in um, a quote that I like, I use it whenever I can in talking about these issues. It comes from Mother Jones, who... Uh, Before she became uh, famous as the name of a magazine, in real life was a tireless fighter for the needs of workers, especially the coal mine workers in West Virginia. And Mother Jones said, pray for the dead, fight like hell for the living. And I love her words and I've adopted them as my own motto. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for your presence, Bonnie. And thank you for having me. It's been a delight. And as I said, you sure made me think. Hmm. Thank you again. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Bonnie Friedman, please visit her website, hospitalwarrior.com. more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.